This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Pam Genoff about The Lost Girls of Paris, a novel set during and immediately after World War II. To say that World War II is having a fictional moment is something of an understatement. What's impressive is that despite the vast amount of ink devoted to the topic, both fictionally and non-fictionally, Many of the titles that have crossed my desk in the last year have found new ways to approach the issues raised by the war. The Lost Girls of Paris, for example, opens after the conflict has officially ended and in a place that never suffered direct attack. Even so, it soon becomes clear that the legacy of World War II is very much present. New York, 1946. If not for the second worst mistake of Grace Healy's life, she never would have found the suitcase. At 9.20 on a Tuesday morning, Grace should have been headed south on the first of two buses she took to get downtown, commuting from the rooming house in Hill's Kitchen to the Lower East Side office where she worked. And she was on her way to work, but she was nowhere near the neighborhood she had come to call home. Instead, she was racing south on Madison Avenue, cowing her corkscrew hair into a low knot and taking off her mint green cardigan despite the chill, so that Frankie wouldn't notice it was the exact same one she had been wearing at work the previous day, and questioned the unthinkable, whether she had gone home at all. Grace paused to study herself in the window of a five-and-dime. She wished the store was open so she could buy some powder to cover up the marks on her neck and sample a bit of perfume to conceal the stench of day-old brandy, mixed with that delicious but wrong smell of Mark's aftershave, which made her dizzy and ashamed with every inhale. A wino sat on the corner, moaning to himself in sleep. Looking at his gray, lifeless pallor, Grace felt a certain solidarity. From the adjacent alley came the banging on a trash can, a sound marching in time with a thudding in her own head. The whole city of New York seemed green and hung over, or perhaps she was confusing it for herself. And now, please join me in welcoming Pam Genoff. Hi, Pam. I look forward to talking with you today. Thanks so much for having me. You've published many novels by now, but you've also worked all along in government, uh, the Pentagon, the State Department, the Foreign Service, and more recently teaching law. So how did you get started writing fiction and why? And apart from anything else, when did you ever find the time? (laughs) (laughs) Well, my story actually begins, I, I want to say 20 years ago, but it's probably closer to 25 at this point. Um, I was sent by the U.S. government to Krakow, Poland as a diplomat for the State Department. 
And when I went over there, it was just after communism had ended. And it was a very momentous time for the people there. And among other things, they were grappling with issues from World War II that they had simply not been able to resolve during the communist period when their free speech was stifled. And so many of these issues were at the forefront after the Cold War ended, issues of property restitution and anti-Semitism and how to preserve the concentration camps. And I was a young Jewish woman on the ground over there, um, and I'd become very close to the Holocaust survivors. And so the U.S. government saw my relationship with the people, and they gave me responsibility for kind of that whole portfolio of issues. And for just under two and a half years, I worked primarily on Holocaust issues. Um, this was very, you know, formative for me, as was living in that part of the world with such close proximity to the war. So I came back very moved and changed with the sense that I wanted to write about it. I should tell you, though, that it wasn't a new idea for me. I had wanted to be a novelist since I was a young child. Um, I had always kind of wanted to be a novelist. And for many years, when I had enough time, I never got started as you know, as a novelist. I could never get it off the ground. Uh, for me, the transformative moment, the epiphany, was actually 9-11. I had come back to the States after diplomatic service. I had gone to law school. And a week after I became a lawyer and started practicing, 9-11 happened. I had this life epiphany where I realized that I didn't, while being a lawyer was a fine and admirable profession, I didn't want to die at the law firm. I wanted to be a writer. And so that was kind of the moment that really got me started in writing my first book. And tell us a little bit about those previous novels, uh, in particular, The Commandant's Girl, which is an international bestseller, but also the earlier books. Uh, so The Commandant's Girl was actually my very first book, um, and it came out in 2007, and it was a story of a young Jewish woman living in Krakow during the war under an assumed Gentile identity, and she has the chance to help the resistance, but at great personal cost to her. That book was inspired by a true story I discovered after I came back from Poland about the Jewish resistance in Krakow, which virtually no one had written about because all of the resistance members died during the war. So, and where did you go from there? What, are, all, are all your books uh, set during the Holocaust? So my, my book that is coming out, The Lost Girls of Paris, the one that uh, my newest one is my 10th book. Um, and I would say there's been a few, maybe two modern books. Um, the majority are historical fiction and the majority of those center around World War II, though not exclusively. So what drew you to the story that became The Lost Girls of Paris? Well, I was researching for my next idea, and I came across this incredible story of British women who had served what was called the Special Operations Executive. And SOE, Special Operations Executive, um, was an organization Churchill created to, as he said, set Europe ablaze. And he wanted the agents to go in behind enemy lines into occupied Europe and engage in sabotage and subversion so that when there was that cross-channel invasion, it would be much easier for the forces. And originally, SOE was comprised of male agents, but they realized that male agents were too easily detected on the streets of, say, Paris or, or small village in France when most of the men were off fighting or imprisoned. And so they, so they came up with the idea of, let's have some female agents. And they recruited women, and they trained them, and they dropped them behind enemy lines. And I was just 
fascinated by this story um, of, of the scope of the missions the women undertook as radio operators and couriers and saboteurs, and also, you know, the scope of their bravery, but also um, several of those women never came back. They were arrested, um, they were imprisoned, and they were executed. And so this very compelling story, not just of what happened to them, but how it happened, how they were caught, really captured my imagination. The novel is told from three different perspectives, uh, all female. Uh, Let's start where the book starts, with Grace Healy in New York in 1946. Uh, Who is she as a person, and what are her issues as a character? Uh, so Grace um, is sort of, you know, she's sort of the outlier because the other characters are over in Europe, but it's 1946 and Grace Healy is living in Manhattan and she's what I call not quite a war widow. And what I mean by that is that her young husband was killed during World War II, but not in combat and under circumstances that Grace feels somewhat responsible for. So she's living in New York, kind of hiding out from her family and and working and trying to figure out what is going to come next for her. Um, And one day she's detoured through Grand Central. She doesn't like to go through Grand Central because that is where she was meant to meet her husband when he was killed. Um, And in Grand Central, she stumbles upon a suitcase. And um, in trying to figure out who has left the suitcase, she discovers photos inside and there's 12 photos of young women. Um, And she is curious and not only wants to return the case, but also to figure out who are these women in the photographs. So what made you decide to use her point of view, which is later in time than the main story, as a frame? Well, you know, I do like multiple points of view. And actually, there's part of me with this book that could have gone for present day framing, you know, with those stories that go back and forth. But I thought it would be really interesting to go to 1946 show life after the war, show life on the home front, um, and have this connect with the two female characters in Europe in a really powerful way. Now, I will tell you that putting it in 1946 presents unique challenges because one didn't just hop on a plane to London or search the internet, you know, to find out who were these girls. Um, So it was quite a question for me as to how could I have her unravel the mystery. Uh, So in Chapter 2, we switched to London in 1943, uh, not that long before, but a very different uh, historical climate, Um, and the perspective of Eleanor Trigg. What is Eleanor's story, and how does she come to be, in a real sense, the crux of your novel, by which I mean the person whose actions have the greatest impact on on the rest of the plot? Eleanor Trigg is what you might call, I I don't want to say the spy handler. She's been called the spy mistress, although I'm not sure that's correct because the women weren't really spies, but she's the woman at Special Operations Executive who is tasked with overseeing the female agents, among other things, their recruitment, their training, their deployment. She is actually inspired by a real-life woman who was named Vera Atkins, who held that position, although, of course, Eleanor and what she does in my book is fictitious, but um, she's very much inspired by Vera Atkins. And Eleanor is the one not only who handles the women, um, but when they are arrested and the circuits in Europe begin to crumble, um, she feels very personally responsible for those girls who did not come home. And so she goes looking in occupied Europe for answers as to what happened to her girls and how they were arrested. She and Grace seem to be very different personalities. Could you talk about that element of them? 
Uh, certainly. So Grace comes from a more polished background, a more traditional background. Um, she's over here in the States, of course. Um, and and Vera, or sorry, Eleanor, who's inspired by Vera Atkins, um, first of all, she's older, and I wouldn't say older by today's standards, but, you know, we would call her older in the book. She's about 40. Um, and she's sort of an unusual character. Um, she's not truly English. She's of Eastern European descent, and she has her own kind of secrets and dark past. And so although she's at SOE, she's very much an outsider in the organization. She's also not quite one of the girls. You know, she, she oversees all these female agents, but she has to sort of be apart from them. So even though Grace and Eleanor are very different, I think they share a commonality of feeling as though they don't belong because Grace in New York, you know, isn't sure if she can or should stay and, and also doesn't quite fit in with any particular world. And that's also true in a sense of the third person we meet, Marie. Um, I searched for her last name while I was uh, putting together my questions and I didn't find it, but I don't know if that was just me losing the exact page or whether it's not an accident. Um, Who is Marie and what does her point of view add to the novel? So Marie does have a last name. It was Rue, R-O-U-X, and frankly, I'm not certain if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, but Marie is one of the female agents for SOE. She's one of the women who is dropped over there. Um, and so Marie's background is she's actually a single mother. Uh, she was abandoned by her scoundrel husband, um, and she's working in London, you know, trying to keep things afloat while her daughter's been sent off to the countryside when she's approached to work for SOE because of her language skills. And she has a real dilemma because she has this child, and if something happens to her, uh, you know, what's going to become of her daughter? But she's compelled by the purposeful nature of the work, by the compensation she needs to support her daughter. And so she goes over and is de- trains and is deployed as an agent in Europe. And I think the way Marie doesn't belong is she's not naturally good at being an agent at first. You know, it's not her inherent skill set. So she really has to grow into the role. Um, Marie is very much a composite character because when I read of the, you know, dozens of women who worked for SOE and there, there are many exploits, I could never possibly do them all justice. And so Marie represents just a tiny snapshot of the work that the women did. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. She winds up in Scotland uh, training for her new position. Uh, She's one of a group of young women recruited by Eleanor for this mission. Uh, It's almost like a school in a way, um, although they're all, well, most of them are post-school years. Uh, She makes friends with, among others, Josie. Um, What is the training like for them, and what's so special about Josie? Um, So it's interesting. The schools you referenced were, in fact, real training schools for SOE agents, and they actually existed throughout Britain, um, a a series of different schools. And in in real life, the agents might have gone to multiple schools, say an introductory course, a specialty course in radio or whatever their skills were going to be, and then a finishing school kind of course, because... 
of the necessities of novel writing, I've sort of focused on one particular training facility where they were. And um, these group of women were a subset of agents training. You know, there were men training there as well. And so Marie comes in and she's very green and inexperienced. And Josie, who she becomes friends with, is kind of a natural at what they do. I mean, Josie's just really kind of born for this work. Josie was raised on the streets and she's kind of a scrapper and she makes a very good agent. And so um, their friendship, both at training school and later when they see each other in Europe, becomes a real focal point of the book and kind of a lifeline for Marie. So they're learning first to be ham operators, but they're also doing a kind of survival training, right? Yes, their training would have depended, um, partly there was training that everybody would get, um, you know, survival training and um, perhaps codes and um, some sort of defense or, you know, uh, some other clandestine operations that they might have needed. And then different people would have training as well based on what their role might be out in the field, um, whether it was radio um, or, or something else. And some of the agents received parachute training, I believe, although others may not have and were just dropped by plane on the ground. And what is Marie's training specifically? What is she being trained to do? Primarily as a radio operator, although as she quickly finds when she gets over to Europe, you know, nobody stays in their little role. The necessity of what they are doing over there um, makes it such that, you know, you have to be one moment a radio operator and one moment a courier or perhaps something even more daring. And what is that like for her, her first uh, uh, experience as a saboteur, really? Well, the first few things she, she's tasked with doing, you know, she, she sort of stumbles and she sort of fails. And, um, you know, the circuit leader gets really frustrated with her. And so it's sort of a role that she has to grow into um, for when the moments are really needed. And you know, I have to say, that's what I love about historical fiction and especially writing women. You, I, in normal life, you know, many of these women would have been on a very set path, but the war sort of shakes that up and throws them off that path. And I love to see how they respond when they're tested. Um, another important character is the director. Um, what can you tell us about him? Well, this is Eleanor's boss, and he's at the head of SOE. Um, and that, you know, it was a difficult position. SOE was a new organization in the British government. wasn't particularly liked by some of the other services, like MI6 or the clandestine services, who were trying to, you know, be covert. And meanwhile, you know, SOE is going out there and blowing things up. And the other services often port often viewed SOE as sort of amateurish um, and not particularly helpful. So a lot of political pressure. um, And of course, there were larger aims in the war. um, And a really big question is, did those aims sort of direct the government in ways that weren't the best for the girls? I think there's a really huge theme in this book of, you know, the trust we place in our government and whether or not it's warranted. Um, It's it's a skip from the director to... uh... Yes. Uh, to Marie, but she does um, end up in op- occupied France, and there she meets uh, a young man named Julian. Uh, so tell us a bit about him and what he's doing there. So Julian is the circuit leader. Um, so how it operated with SOE is that the agents actually worked in these small networks or circuits, and often they would work three people together, and it would be a radio operator, a courier, and maybe a circuit leader, and they would work in these different places. And Julian has a huge role. He basically oversees all of the circuits in this part of France. 
um, you know, sort of northern France down to Paris. So he's got a lot of responsibility and a lot of conflicting goals. So on one hand, you want to be increasingly successful in your operations. But on the other hand, circuits work well and when they're kept small and discreet. And so he's a young man with a lot of pressure on him. Um, and Marie finds her, and he also doesn't speak French. So Marie finds herself working closely as his translator. That's a, a pretty difficult uh, situation for him to be in, to be in France when he doesn't speak French. Why was he selected? Um, well, it, it, this was the case that sometimes if people had other skills, leadership or combat or whatever it might be, um, they might not be in a role that was often engaging with the public. And so they might not, um, they might not be fluent in French, although most of the agents and especially, you know, the ones who were going to be on the street were. I mean, the other really interesting piece about Julian is as the book progresses, he has a sense that something's not going right. And, and, you know, there's these little glitches and frustration and what's going on. And he's actually trying to get London to listen. And he goes back to try and persuade London to listen. And he finds his concerns falling on deaf ears. And what is the relationship between him and Marie? Is it purely professional? Well, you know, Marie's in a funny position. She certainly did not come to Europe looking for any sort of entanglement. Bear in mind, she's been jilted by her husband, and her concerns are do the job, get home. Um, and Julian carries with him his own heartbreak because he once had a family. So these are not people looking for romance, and these are not people, it, it's not sort of a casual or easy story. But, you know, when people in those circumstances, spent so much time isolated in close quarters. Um, there were many times when feelings developed. And so the challenge was, could they acknowledge those feelings without having it get in the way of the mission? So I think we've probably gone about as far into the 1943 story as we can without giving away spoilers. Um, so let's loop back to Grace in New York. Um, she found the set of photographs, as you mentioned, and she does try to return the suitcase. But by the time she gets back to the station, actually, it's the photographs she wants to return to the suitcase. She's taken them out of it. Um, but by the time she gets back to the station, the suitcase is gone. Um, so why does she then decide to find out more other than the obvious reason that you, as the author, want her to? I think there's a few things going on. One is curiosity. You know, these pictures of these 12 women and who are they? Another thing is a sense of obligation. She took them from the suitcase and, you know, she, she has a sense that if she doesn't return them, maybe, you know, no one else will. The other thing is she pretty quickly finds out that the photos and the suitcase belong to Eleanor Trigg, the spy master who is now in New York and has just been killed in a car accident. And so um, there becomes this like deeper layer of not just who were the girls, but who is Eleanor. And if you think about Grace, who's in New York, trying to figure out her life and not quite sure what comes next, um, these questions sort of give her one, a chance to step away from her own dilemma, but secondly, a sense of purpose. What was it like to research the story? I mean, you've done many books in this period, but each one is unique. And you, you mentioned that there were our accounts of the agents. Um, is there a lot of material on the program? There actually is a surprising amount of nonfiction. So um, one thing for me as a an author of historical fiction, I always joke that there's three questions. How do you research? 
How do you weave the history in with the fiction? And how do you not make mistakes in the research? And those are three completely separate questions that we can't go into exhaustively here today. Um, But you're correct that each book presents its own challenges. So for this book, it was not a challenge of finding material. There's lots of nonfiction, great nonfiction that's been written about it um, that, that was readily accessible um, it, you know, through libraries. So one challenge was how not to go down the rabbit hole of research and just not get so buried in stories that I couldn't write my book. The second challenge, I think, was a question of scope. And what I mean by that is I've got three women on two different continents over multiple years. And so how could I bring history in, um, but still manage these very unwieldy, you know, storylines. And then the third question really about all this was uh, having to do with kind of what happened to the girls, because without spoiling the story too much, there are competing theories of what happened to them um, and, and how they might've come to be arrested and how to write one of those theories that was both credible and yet compelling for storytelling was also very challenging. So how do you craft a historical novel? Where do you start? Do you start with the research or you start with the story or you mix them up? How do do you approach it? So I am what I would describe as a contemporaneous researcher. And what I mean by that is other authors have said they need to research for months ahead of time till the research is sewn into their skin. That's not me. I only need so much research before jumping in. And so um, I, you know, I can do a little bit and then I can research as I go specific questions. It's a different part of my brain than the writing part. and It works at a different time of day. So it's sort of very efficient. In terms of how I write the story, um, you, you know, I'm sure you've heard there's two types of writers, plotters and pantsers. And plotters are those dear souls that outline and make the sentences nice before they move on. I'm not one of those. I'm a pantser. And so I start with an idea and I open my computer and I just throw down words on the page for like months in any order. It's not a good way to write a book because the editing is very difficult. So, um, but that's how I do it. It's the only way that works for me. I'm a pantser too. I absolutely. Oh, good. (laughs) Oh, good. Thankfully. I've tried outlining and it doesn't work for me. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So, um, Is there anything that you would like to let our listeners know about the book that we haven't mentioned? Oh, you've covered so much. You've really, you know, really hit it. I think that, um, you know, for me, this was a tremendously challenging project, but it was, you know, to, to bring these stories together, but it was also incredibly rewarding in a way to be able to write about women um, in a way that's so relevant for our times, it's kind of very empowered times and finding our voice. And here's a group of women that did incredible things and really received no recognition at the time and only some recognition years later. Um, so it's really a joy to be able to give them some voice in this book. And what would you like readers to take away from this book? I would like them uh, to know of the heroism of the women and the strength of their friendships. And I often, when I am facing situations where I I need strength, I I look to these historical characters and the things they did for inspiration. So if this book can do that for even one person, I would be grateful. That's wonderful. Uh, The Girls of Paris has actually, at the time that we're talking, it's not quite out yet. Um, Are you already working on something new? 
I am. I'm working on another World War II project, although it's so early in the pants- pantsing stage, right, that I would hesitate to say anymore. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Pam Jenoff about the Lost Girls of Paris. Find out more about her at www.pamjenoff.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.